If you're here for the very first time, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and just blessed to have you here with us here in person and on those online for those who a little challenged with the snow this morning and and, uh, and chose to, I pray you chose to get online and to catch the service and we're going to be picking back up where we left off before Christmas and that is in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. If you would open up your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Revelation 13 and then we will go through verse by verse. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. In verse 10, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. As we start back up here in Revelation chapter 13, we are introduced into this chapter to beasts through which Satan establishes control over the multitudes of earth's people during the tribulation time. Chapter 13 is divided into two parts. We've already seen clearly in chapter 12, if you've been with us, that we were introduced to the red dragon, which is clearly Satan. Here, we're going to see another character, the Antichrist, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 through 18, we will see the false prophet. Here in verses 1 through 10, we are going to see this first beast coming on the scene, and it appears to be a political figure, a leader we refer to as Antichrist or the Antichrist. In the verses 18, 11 to 18, we see this is a religious figure that will come on the second beast. The second beast, a religious leader that will move the hearts of the people that are still here on this earth, a false prophet that will be a, used by Satan, empowered by Satan, to help the 
political leader to lead the world astray. Both of them, both beasts, received their power directly from Satan, the great deceiver and imitator. Biblical prophecies are very clear. Biblical prophecies are clearly predict the rise of the Antichrist in the end times, and more than a hundred passages of Scripture describe the Antichrist's origin, nationality, character, career, and global conquest. Those are outlined in the scriptures. As you if you study that particular topic of the Antichrist, you will know. We will catch some of those in the teachings of today and, Lord willing, next week. We found here in verse 1 that John found himself, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. We do not know which sea. Many commentators tried to tell you which sea, but we don't know which sea. So don't fill in the blank on which sea. You see? Just so, so we just make it clear. We just keep it what it is. Whatever it is, he's, he's, he's depicting, because uh, a sea means things in the scriptures, and it's the multitudes. He's standing among here. We see a description. I believe he's standing among the many nations. Of what is the nations of that time. And he describes what he sees here. This beast rising up out of the sea. Having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns. And on his heads a blasphemous name. Now remember in Revelation chapter 12. John's vision mainly had a heavenly heaven in view. Now in chapter 13, we see that John has a vision shifted to the earth. And in his vision, he stood on the sands of the sea. Many people today love the sea. Can't wait to get to the sea. Oh, it makes you relax and feel comfortable. And, and I can go draw closer to God because I get to the sea. But that's not true for those of that day. The Jewish people did not like the sea. We see in the scriptures that they were very cautious of the sea. It's not something that they went to to find comfort and relaxation and joy. It was much more of the unknown and one that they preferred not to even be uh, coming toward. So in the biblical times, when John is expressing this, this, oh, the beast rising out of the sea was a, not a good thing. It was a bad thing. To maybe to, even to the extent when we see in, in, in uh, 1 Kings 9, verses 26 and 27, if you go back and you look at that, you see the ancient Israel stood under the, the kingship of a Solomon wanted to have a navy. But he couldn't get the Jewish people to be on these boats. He just made sure there was funding for this navy. And so he went to Hiram, uh, the king of Tyra, who supplied the sailors because they were the ones, no fear of sailing. And because of the ancient Israel was cautious of the sea, it was a figure of evil and chaos that seems to what he's referring to coming out of or resisting of God and coming out of the sea. Though the resistance will be very unsuccessful. But he says from a place of identity here with this evil, this chaos, this resistance that he's going to referring to, a beast comes forth. And the ancient Greek word translated here for beast is the idea of a wild and dangerous animal. And that's why many people, when you hear of the beast, you think of something very ugly and, and very grotesque that you would, have, if you see it, you would propel it. But don't be deceived, because Satan is a deceiver. What you see is not what you're going to get. The outward many times can deceive people. It's the heart that you cannot see, but God can. And that's exactly what plays out here. 
because the beast will come forth and it because of the description, because John calls him a beast and not a dragon like we see in Revelation chapter 12 verse 3 describing Satan, this creature represents someone distinct from Satan who was represented by the dragon we see in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. But out of the nations, out of the sea, is many more than likely he was a Gentile. This man, this Antichrist, this beast will be a Gentile and not a Jew. But we do not know clearly in the scriptures what he is. Scripture leans toward, and I lean toward, that he will be a Gentile and not a Jew. Doesn't mean he can't be. Doesn't mean he's not a secular Jew or whatever. But we just don't know. But everything seems to point toward especially when we start talking about coming out of the Roman Empire and uh, depicting um, more of a Gentile nature, origin. But this beast has a description from John to show what kind of power and what kind of abilities and what influences he has of this, this beast. We see that having seven heads and ten horns, through this, this, though this beast is distinct from the dragon, he is still very closely identified with him, and he will reflect the character of the dragon. He is not the dragon, but he is like him that we see the description of the dragon, the Satan, in, in Revelation chapter 12. But he is like him because the dragon also had seven heads and ten horns that we see in chapter 11, verse 3. That's why many people believe it's one and the same. Any creature with seven heads is not good. And you've heard the term, you act like you have seven heads. I have seven heads. You're looking at me like I have seven heads or something. What do I look at? What, 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 you're, you're, you know, it's not clear to me. But any creature with seven heads would be hard to kill. Because if you wounded one head, there are still six working and functioning to get you. But in biblical imagery here, horns express strength and power. Even though you're taking one head out, it still has strength and power. And this likeness to Satan is just one of the things that identifies this beast with the popular person that we know in the scripture called Antichrist. Where do you see the word Antichrist in the scripture? Only four, four places and two books. 1 John and 2 John. We see those verse four, four verses that describes or uses the word antichrist. It appears there in the Bible in 1 John 2.18, 2.22 and 4.3. And then in 2 John chapter uh, 7. In 1 John 2.18, it says, is a perfect example of who this person is. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Little children, it's the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. And if you don't believe it, you need to keep focusing on God and getting into the Word because it's true that the Antichrist is coming. Now let me tell you right up front, do I believe he's here right now? I don't know. I don't know if he's full grown. I don't know if he just was born uh, on the new year. I don't know what state is. I don't need to know. I just know that he's coming. Are you with me? So I don't fear these things. As a matter of fact, I get more excited that they were in the eye because that means the Lord's coming back for us. So I don't worry about these things, and you should not be worrying about these things. Unless you're not right with the Lord, then you should be worried about these things. See, with this, John referred to an individual here in these scriptures. That's why some people say, is this an individual or is this a government that we're talking about when we talk about the Antichrist? 
And I tell you, yes. Because it is both. Because Antichrist will be a man who will rise up and he will run a government, one world government, who will reflect his character. So the answer is yes, but here we're talking specifically about a man here because the Antichrist means um, in anti, it's, a, it's, the, it's the instead of. There's two options. There's the opposite of or the instead of view of that anti. The Antichrist is the opposite Jesus. Yes, that is true. But he is also instead of, and that is what is referring to here in the scripture. Most people have focused on the idea of the opposite Jesus because it's easy to understand. And because of the fact that you see the Antichrist as being the beast, the opposite of Jesus, you just have the opposite of the characteristics. As much as Jesus went around doing good and what is right, the Antichrist will go around doing bad and doing wrong. That's very simple for people to make that transition. As much as Jesus' character and personality was beautiful and attractive, and every child would just be drawn to Jesus. It didn't matter who it is. You could be the most wicked sinner. It was drawn to Jesus. The blind was drawn to Jesus. So what do you do? You flip that. The Antichrist's character and personality was ugly and repulsive. And that's why people depict that in uh, pictorials. As much as Jesus spoke with only truth, the Antichrist will speak only lies. Again, the, the emphasis is on the opposite of Jesus too much. But here in the scriptures, we say it's instead of. We look Wonderful, right? We, we, we look and say the Antichrist is, 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 is instead of being more or opposite, the Antichrist will instead be more instead of Jesus. And what does that mean? This is the deception. The Antichrist will look wonderful and be charm, charming and successful in the eyes of man. When you see him, Lord willing, we'll never see him. But when they see him, he's not going to be grotesque. He is going to draw people by his outward looks and ability to charisma and to bring people in into believing and listening and to follow him. That's where the empowerment's going to come. Because he's going to deceive the whole world. He will be the ultimate winner and appear as an angel of light, the scripture says. He's not going to have darkness. He's going to look like light. But that light is an oncoming locomotive that's going to take out people. The Antichrist will be a satanic messiah instead of the true messiah, Jesus Christ. He's a substitute. He's going to mimic everything God is doing, and, and Satan is going to mimic God, everything, right down to a, the beast, the Antichrist, to deceive the people, to think he's the Messiah, to think he's the Savior of the world, because he's the political leader. He's coming on. He has all the answers. When the world is in chaos... And people are begging for someone, please help my children. Help my, my mother, help my father, help my... And you're begging for help for, because you're, you're in a really bad place. Whatever that may be, I won't fill it in. And this man has the power to be able to influence you. Say, follow me. Take this mark, do this, do this, do this, do that, and you will do this, and you will have promise, you will be just fine, you will make it. This man will have the power to influence you. In 1 John, like I said in 2.18, John spoke of the fact that the Antichrist 
is a person, but there's also, we have seen, the spirit of Antichrist, the little a, throughout this, the history. There were like test runs with some people. But ultimately, there is only one Antichrist that Satan will possess and will empower and one be one with them to do the work of the final work that we see in the scripture here. But there's a spirit of the Antichrist. There's a spirit of Antichrist with one day will ultimately be fulfilled and complete in this man called the Antichrist. Who will lead humanity in the end times rebellion against God. Though we commonly call this coming world leader the Antichrist, the Bible is very clear on many names that we have seen as you study the scripture. You know them. The wicked one we find in Psalm 10, verses 2 through 4. Or the little horn in Daniel 7, 8. Or the fierce, the king of fierce countenance in Daniel 8, 23. The prince that shall come on, Daniel 9.26. The despicable person, in Daniel 11.2. The willful king, in Daniel 11. One who comes in his own name, we see in John 5.43. Whom Israel will receive as the Messiah because they're looking for a political leader to come on the scene to solve the wars and all the conflicts and all the pressures that are going on. Why do you see the anti-Semitism rising? Why do you see everyone coming against Israel? Why do you see these things going higher than ever before? Because everything is getting set up for the Antichrist to come on, a political leader, to say, I have the peace treaty and solution for the chaos that is going on. We also see the son of perdition, the son of sin, or the man of sin, and the lawless one we see in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. See, from the very beginning of the Christian era, believers were convinced there would be a world ruler who will be embodied by Satan and would eventually come on the scene. And we're seeing more signs and symptoms of all these things much clearer in the scripture than any of our previous brothers and sisters of time. Revelation chapter 12 and 13 presents an unholy trinity in front of us that aligns Satan versus the Father, the Antichrist versus the Son, and the false prophet versus the Holy Spirit. Again, the, Satan is nothing, doesn't do anything, nothing new to the Son of these things that he does. So the real power behind the Antichrist is Satan himself. But we see here on his head there, his horns, on his horns, ten crowns. Which is something different about the beast compared to the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 verse 3. And these crowns that sit on the horns are seven diadems of his head. It's the seven crowns of the dragon expressed his strength and power. Because seven is the number associated with strength and, and uh, um, completeness or uh, comprehension or completeness. And it's the ten crowns of the beast is expressing his rule over a group of ten nations. The confederation of nations that will be formed in these end times. And the rulers over these ten nations will be ruled by this Antichrist, this, this one leader. So when you ponder on these things and you know these are to be coming into the future and you watch the news or you watch the things and the, the alignments of nations with nations and against nations, you watch these things. <coughs> 
And you see very distinct nations all making decisions, but some of the partnerships that are and, and, and coming together, you see with the BRICS and then the European Union and all these other things that are going on. All I say is I don't know what's happening and who's moving the chess pieces, but Satan is working through someone to make that all happen. How do I believe that's going to happen? Through economic pressure. The initial signs will be just economics. But eventually, once there is one more unity among the, there will be someone who will oversee and does oversee the entire economic world economic system. And once they have a control over that, we will see in the, re- the second part of chapter 13, you, will not, you, you and I will be out of here, but those left behind will not be able to buy or sell or move about without permission. Now that's why we, we focus on what the scripture tells us. We're prepared for Jesus' return, and we also prepare for the fact that God will give us the strength and abilities to stay focused through this period of time until he does return for us. However long that may be. I hope soon. Today would be fine. It actually solves many, all my problems and your problems. If you're a child of God, walking with the Lord. If you're not this morning, that should bring great fear into your hearts. But it doesn't have to be. Just give your life to Jesus today. Surrender your life. He will forgive you and give you the hope that we all, most of all, probably all of us here have. And that's the eternal hope of life with him. Amen? Now, it's also interesting. Daniel's vision. I mean, many commentators think that the ten horns are distributed among seven heads. I you know, it doesn't, again, I, I, people can fine-tune that discussion, but, but few sees all ten horns on only one of the heads that some believe. The figure of the ten horns also associated with this beast, the beast is clearly outlined and lined up. You have to go back and read Daniel chapter 7. It's a very important read today for you. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 2 as well. But Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, represents that final world empire, the Antichrist, which is the Messiah will ultimately defeat is that empire. But that Antichrist, it it depicts there. And in that Daniel's vision, the ten horns specifically represented ten kingdoms that this final world dictator has the authority over. And you'll get to that in chapter 7 of 24 of Daniel. But in John's vision, the ten horns of the ten uh, ten crowns on the uh, the, the horns emphasizes this idea. That there is going to be a realignment of nations to line up to be able to oversee the world at that time. And the visions in chapter 2 of Daniel and in chapter 7 of Daniel, when you take a look at those and connect the governments represented by these ten crowns, brings to light the ancient Roman Empire that will rise and come back from the dead. Because it was overthrown. You saw many weeks ago Nebuchadnezzar's dream. From the, the, from the head to the, the belly, the, the shoulders, and we get down to the legs, and they're split in two, which is the Roman Empire. People say, why, how does the, the legs be? Well, if you really think about it, Roman Empire was really, in Europe, was split from the east from the west. But it gets down to the toes, which will be the new kingdom that will come on, and it'll be a mixture of other elements, including clay. Not as strong, but it's still mighty in many ways. But they will be crushed by Jesus ultimately when he returns. But in that vision, as we see the first three empires have come and they have gone, 
in the days of the fourth empire that we're describing that the Antichrist will be leading, that's when the Messiah will come and destroy all earthly rule and reign over the earth at that point in time. But until that time, there is going to be a control over this world by one man. A one world government that will control these ten nations who will control the people. Now as we look at this, he talks about the very end of that verse, about his heads of blasphemous name. And it's not so much the name, I believe, there's like, not like a banner across that, but I believe what, is, is what he's referring to is the, speaks of the character of this man. It would be the character of this man will be very clear against God in every aspect. There's not going to be one thing that's going to line up what he really believes and what he's going to force upon the people at that time will, will be completely opposite of the character of God. I haven't done this study, but the Lord is showing me right now I need to go back and do the study. What are, the, what are the key things that God stands for in the scriptures that the Antichrist will be completely opposite of? The first one I would think would be marriage. Family. I'm with that. Gender. Man, woman versus man. Everything, as we go down this, I haven't counted them and I haven't written it down. It's just coming into my mind. I have to certainly go back and do this study. But what are these seven key things that we see today God's character in marriage is clear. God's character of how he created you and me is clear. You can go down the list. And what are we seeing in the signs now in the world today? Each of those key things are being twisted and completely dysfunctioned. Chaos is suing. That's what I believe. As I ponder on the blasphemous name, everything that will come and what will be promoted and say is good will be blasphemous. He will be a blasphemer. And that maybe we shouldn't call him the Antichrist. He's just a blasphemer. Because it's going to be his name. It's going to represent who he is. And he's going to be doing that against God. We see that in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. In verse 2, he says, Now the beast which I saw was like a, a leopard. Now, notice this. He wasn't a leopard. <laughs> like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. This man has nothing apart from what Satan is now giving him to do. In this vision, God used animal images from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 to communicate the identity or the nature of this beast. And so John, in Daniel 7, used for the animal beast to describe the course of human government that this man will be running. And ultimately will you know, lose everything when Jesus comes to reign on earth. But the first three animals are like a lion. And Daniel, the picture of the lion was who? The what government? The Babylonian Empire. Taken out. A bear that he uses here back in Daniel is the picture of Medo-Persian Empire that came and went. Then we see the, a leopard in, in, in its, a, a picture of the Greek Empire that came and went. Now we're on, those three empires are gone. So there's only the fourth empire. The fourth animal was a dreadful, indescribable beast which shared the most terrifying characteristics of the previous beast. It takes all of these, all the bad part into this fourth beast. 
fourth, fourth animal. It represents the final world empire under this leadership of a satanic dictator that we it's spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. We can see how the governments are changing. You can see the lawlessness that is going at the highest of levels of every government. Not just the United States, but every government is spiraling out of control. So when John talks about and sees the vision of this beast and the extension of this beast, this fourth beast that is coming out and that he, he understood from Daniel chapter 7, connecting these empires and the characteristics of the, all these great empires that in the past have come and went, if they are described in prophecy of coming and going, why do you and I think about the fourth one? Is it going to come? Yes, it's coming. Regardless how you feel, it's coming. The next election is not going to change this. The next World Economic Forum is not going to change this, except maybe bring us closer to what the scripture talks about. But why the animals? Well, I look at that and you see that this last final world empire will have the swift vigilance of a leper. This leopard moves quickly and very vigilant and very swift. That's what this new government is going to be like. It's, and it's also going to be the slow and crushing power of a bear. But also the authority and the fierceness of a lion. See, the beast will move forcefully and quickly to establish his worldwide domination. And you've heard me warn you. Scripture in many places, just like the birth pangs. It starts off, you just sense the birth pangs. So, mm, something there, maybe, 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 but it was the, I think it was the Chinese food last night, sweetheart. I don't think it's the baby. But it quickly finds out that that picks up not only frequency, but intensity. That is what description, I believe, is going to happen in the end times. We went from one aspect of how we live, it will quickly and dominantly control and change for us overnight when this happens. Yeah, many people will have debate with you and over about this broad, it's just a totalitarian governments, and, and uh, we've seen that happen, right? In the 20th century, we've seen that happen. We've seen governments uh, with key, key men empowered with a small a antichrist spirit about them. Like Hitler is a perfect example, would come to mind. You see these samplings that are happening. They've come and they went. You can see this, this in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. The figures of Adolf Hitler as an individual was very clear, but he brought about a Nazi Germany as a state that virtually was the same. They became like their leader. That's what we're seeing in, in samples of what is happening, not only in biblical as we read it, but also in our current history. We see this beast is a man closely identified with a world-dominating government that he will lead. It's an image and it's a person that is going to build himself an empire. And so controlled, as we will see, that no one can do anything except follow him. Now it's interesting, remember, this beast is finally judged. Don't forget the, the best part. If the, if the beginning of the story is too overwhelming for you and I, go to the end of the book and read the final chapter. What happens to this beast? The beast will come to an end. Jesus is in control. 
All of these things I'm talking about are all under the sovereign work of God. He said this is how it's all going to be played out. And he had described all of this and everything is going to take place before the foundations of the world. Before he created anything, these things, and again, you get your head wrapped around an all-knowing God. You, you're not God, so you're going to have some tough times getting your head around an all-knowing God. Why he would create, what did we see, and it played out, and know this is happening before he even started this whole thing. You'll struggle with that. You'll wrestle with that for a while and continue. But it's still the truth. God is a sovereign, God is in control, and this beast's final judgment, he's going to go to perdition, he's going to go into the lake of fire with Satan, with the false prophet, and all of those who have rejected God and did not want to give their life to Jesus. And he and they for eternity will continue to exist and suffer. That's why I know the Antichrist is truly speaking of a man and not a government, because a government is not thrown into the lake of fire. We see it's a person thrown into the lake of fire. And when we get to Revelation chapter 17, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that will become even clearer. But the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Everything was turned over to this beast that was empowered by uh, Satan to take over. And when you think about that, why would a man choose to do that? Did he have a choice? I say yes. Because Satan is the same yesterday. He hasn't changed. Still today, he hasn't changed. When was the last time we see in the scripture where he offered someone the world? To Jesus. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, he tried to get Jesus in the wilderness to to. Not go as planned by his father, but Satan said, follow my plan and I'll make it easier for you. Satan is going to make an offer a man cannot refuse and he will be empowered to do what we see in the scripture. See, this beast is not going to be any ordinary man. He is called the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. And we'll see it also in Revelation 17, 8. Ordinary men do not come from the, from the bottomless pit. So something sitting there, and as I read those scriptures, I say, okay, it's not just any man just accepting this. It's someone who's been prepared, and you can struggle with that, like I've been struggling with that. How is this man going to come about? He's going to come about. Even if we don't know all the details and how that's going to happen, we just know it's going to happen. It may be that Satan himself takes possession of this man. And that's what's going to make him exceptional in his abilities to deceive the world. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads, and as if it had seen mortally wounded, had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Again, this is part of the deception, is it not? We see that somehow this beast is as if it had been mortally wounded. And I saw one of his heads, meaning only one of the heads was actually killed. Or mortally, appears to be mortally wounded. Deadly wound was healed, though. How was it healed? Can Satan heal? I don't know. But as I read and ponder on this, I'm sitting there going, how did the, the wound actually happen? Was it, was it the, perhaps God's judgment against the beast? 
that took one of the heads out? I even move in the direction I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. But we see that deception of Satan presenting like this person has died and came back to life. Why? Because he's imitating what Jesus has done. He died and he came back to life. So he's going to mimic these things. And what it does is it drew the people of that world. Look at, notice the word. All the world marveled and followed the beast because it was so miraculous in its view. Amazing what will happen. Even later, twice later, Revelation 13, 12, then we'll get to the next week, and 14, talks about this, this recovery and the connections and how that will be used to cause people to deceive, to follow this man. Wounded, then healed. And it's going to cause them to do something very specific. And that is in verse 4. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It's going to be so dramatic that this People are going to know that Satan, the dragon, is what empowering this man to do the work. And he's going to get glorified. He's going to be honored. People are going to follow him. Because they're going to know that Satan is actually giving them the authority to this beast to be able to do what he's going to do. And they didn't just come and say, hey, let's make some good political decisions and political um, debates and we'll sit there in the halls of whatever and we'll make some what's best for the people. That is not how it's going to go in the one world government. The government's going to make a decision or this man's going to make a decision and the people have to comply. You don't have a say. But not only is it not just political, but notice it's a spiritual element here. They worshipped the beast. They gave their allegiance to the beast. They committed their life to the beast. As you worship Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus. You have devoted your life to Jesus. You're willing to do whatever Jesus wants you to do. What to be, because he's your savior. He's the one that's forgiven you of all your sins. He's made you a weight to come to the Father. To have eternal hope and a promise. This ungodly trinity is going to cause the same thing to happen in those days. And they will be deceived because of these things of perceived miracles that are happening and experiences is going to cut. This man is going to be so incredibly genius. And miraculous things in his life, the people will be drawn to this man. And they will worship him. And they'll say, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Everyone's trying to stop. They, they can't stop him. They'll bow down to him. Before his government. Before him. And the sad part, they don't even... I think it's very clear to me in the scripture here. They know this is Satan's work. This is not God's work. So you can't say, oh man, they're so deceived. They only knew, how are we going to let them know? Well, they, when you push away God and keep pushing away God, your heart becomes so hard you can't even see God right in front of you. You can't sense him. You can't hear from him. You can't see the miracle that God is doing because your heart has gotten so hard and so blinded to the darkness. That's why we're always warning you. Don't harden your heart. 
Every time God knocks at the door of your heart and you reject him and don't want to receive him as your Lord and Savior, you're hardening your heart. Please don't do that. The Antichrist will be the most incredible political leader in the world has ever known. On the surface, he will appear to be this embodiment of human genius and power. Like, wow, this man is incredible. So smart. Why? Because the devil knows how to empower him and to work through his life to deceive you and I in humanity who gravitates to these kinds of people like they're someone you should be worshiping. No, come on, pastor, get out of here. All I have to do is listen to some conversations about some latest guy on the basketball team who can jump higher than anybody, and it's like, you're worshiping the guy? You, you, I mean, or the next singer who is doing this and writing certain music, and it's always, you listen to this conversation like, do you worship that person? Political leader, oh, this guy's going to come in, he's going to save us, oh, he's powerful. Really? You really think... That man or woman's going to save us. You talk like they're, they're the Savior. There is only one Savior for you and I and for the world. And that is Jesus. The author and the finisher of our life. Don't, let, don't forget that. Don't be chasing man or woman. We must keep our eyes on it because the devil knows fully well how to dazzle people by the attraction of power or the craving of knowledge or delighting your ear in music and on the eye of captivating through beauty and to captivate you and to hook you to do what he wants you to do. He understands how to mess with you. He knows how to move people through worldly greatness and fame. People do it all the time. Look at how famous he is. And people will be consumed by that person every day. Following them on every social media as possible. Consuming. At the detriment of what God has called you to do. At the detriment of your family. The detriment of your kids. The detriment of your own self. Your jobs. Because you're so consumed by fame and, and greatness and all these other people in this world. We can't allow that, my brothers and sisters. Yes, I understand this man. Remember, the, some of the characteristics we see just in Daniel alone in, in, in Revelation 2. He's an intellectual genius. He's an oratorial genius. He's going to have words that you're just going to just fall in love with how he's going to communicate. Political genius, commercial genius, military genius, administrative genius, religious genius. He actually has the master of deception, which we see in Daniel eleven twenty one, is one of the most intelling characteristics of this man. Many believe he's Satan incarnated. That's who the end time people are going to deal with. Verse 5 and he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. God has allowed him to have this kind of control for 42 months. Three and a half years, the first three and a half years. That is it. Remember, God's in control. This blasphemer will say all kinds of things over and over and over and have all kinds of authority. And the beast will continue to resist and resist and resist without God intervening for 42 months. That means he will have full reign and control. What happens, verse 7? And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwelt on the earth will worship him whose name have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world.
He was given this ability. He could not do it without empowered by Satan. In chapter 12, we saw and described that broad phenomenon of satanic persecution during the tribulation period. Here, the main instrument of persecution is revealed. The government of the beast will persecute and kill all those who do not bow in worship to the beast. How can they not overcome them? How can anyone be there to help them? Why isn't God intervening here? Overcome does not mean that the beast can overcome the faith of the saints, as we see here in the scripture. Who are the saints is always the biggest question. Let me remind you, saints are, are not just those you and I who were born and raised in the New Testament era. We see saints also referred to those in the Old Testament as well. So when you talk about a Jewish believer of faith in the Old Testament is referred to as a saint. Why do I say that? Who are these saints who are overcome by the beast? It depends on your viewpoint of pre-tribulation versus post-tribulation. Pre-tribulation, those who believe that, believe that these saints are God's people who come to Christ after the church has been raptured and get saved during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. These are the saints they're referring to. If you're a post-tribulation rapture person, then it believes that these saints are God's people. You and I, the church, who are on the earth before the final rapture. I go back to Matthew 16, 18. And again, I don't think we're, I don't believe we're going through uh, the wrath of God. We'll be raptured pre-wrath. Jesus said of the church that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. After, we're not mentioned here, as we will see in another verse. I'll make a note here, but the overcome by Satan cannot happen to the church. So what happens here? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Many have died. Don't forget, most of, <laughs> there's, there's been a lot of death through these, these three and a half years, don't forget. Now, how will they worship? I don't know. They will worship it. If you remember in the Roman Emperor, Empire, the, the Roman Emperors and during the Roman Empire, they had to take all the residents in that empire, had to take a pinch of incense before the statue of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Whatever that looks like in the modern day, that what I believe. Especially if it's the Roman Empire rising up, nothing's new under the sun. But the people, most people did not see that as a religious act. But those who were Christians at the time of the Roman Empire, they saw taking a pinch of incense as a not a just some government take the pinch. I will refer to it that way. Just take the pinch. Many didn't see that as anything worse than anything. But they did, they, the, 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 the Christians said, we're not taking the pinch and doing that incense and say Caesar's Lord because that is a religious act. It's a religious form of worship. We are not doing it. And that's why they were killed. And that happened in many different forms even the 20th century, through Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Mayo, all, they did it all. The same, same, same spirit kind of mentality. And it was to those who what? It says very clear, those names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb from the foundations of the world. These are the people who flat out would refuse Jesus all the way through, even through all the turmoil pain and suffering, hardened hearts, they will worship the Antichrist. 
Lastly, verses 9 and 10, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So here, he who has an ear, let him hear. It introduces what? A solemn warning for everybody. It's supposed to capture your attention. If you have an ear, you better be listening. Don't be tuning anything out here. You better be listening. It's a warning to all unsaved people. Today and then. If you have an ear. You better be listening. It's not the time to close out, close your ears down and blah, la 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 not listening to him again. But he who leads into captivity will go into captivity. It's prophesied. It's part of God's predetermined plan. It does not lessen in the slightest way man's personal responsibility. God has given us the ability to make a decision. If you work for the beast and lead others into captivity, certainly you shall also be go into captivity yourself. It's a warning for all of us. You reject God today, you want nothing to do with Jesus, and then you turn around and cause other people to also to reject God's truth in, in, the, in Jesus? I'm warning you now by the scripture, you're leading yourself into captivity. You're leading yourself into destruction. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is not only a deceiver, he's a robber all that God has for you if you would just give your life to Christ and follow him. But he doesn't stop at that. He doesn't just deceive. He doesn't just rob. He goes to the nth degree. He will destroy. He will kill. That is how Satan works and he will not change. Are you with me? That's why John makes it very clear for us in this, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Clear to us don't go down that path. And at the very end, it's interesting at the very end of verse 10, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Even though the saints are viciously attacked by the Antichrist and his followers, the saints of God must steadfast faith, must stand steadfast. And all the ultimate justice, injustice that, that, that's going to be poured out on them, we must stay faithful in the ultimate justice of God. God is in control. He will ju judge them. He will deal with this situation. He will deal with that. And he will reward all saints. Reward all, their, all saints through the persecutors and the persecution that will come upon them. He will reward them. Just stay faithful and stay focused. As we go to the communion table, I'll have the communion table, the, the men to come forward. As we take communion together as a family, the word that keeps coming to my mind, we're going to play a song as we're going to the communion. I need you to do this in, my, in your mind and pray. A couple of things. If you're a non-believer, don't take communion. It'll be bringing harsher judgment upon you. But before we take communion, the Lord is working in your heart to give your life to Christ. In your heart, you raise your hand to Christ. Surrender your life. Ask for the forgiveness of your sins. And ask him to come in to save you. Surrender your life today. If you're here or those online, surrender your life. Raise your hand to God and ask for his mercy and grace and forgiveness. And be saved. Then as a believer, take communion because it is a most special blessed moment for all of us because it reminds us every time we take communion it reminds us we are saved we are forgiven 
We have eternal hope and a promise. We know exactly what's going to happen to us as we move forward. We know where we're going. We need to rejoice in that. Ponder on the suffering, yes, of Christ and what he went through. This was not a this was not insignificant moment of him going to the cross. He was beaten beyond recognition as a human being. If you've ever been in the medical world, you understand what I'm saying when you see someone who's been in a major, and I've seen train accidents, I've seen car accidents, I've seen truck accidents, I've seen many things, and the body blows up beyond recognition. But he didn't get in a chain wreck. They literally plucked his beard out and beat him to a pulp. His body started just going beyond what you would think a human body can endure. But he endured for you and me. Why? Because he loves you. You are loved. Did you know you're loved? You are by the Savior of the world. So as we take communion, ponder on these truths. Here's the thing I need you to focus on. What do you believe? What do you believe? Do you believe what the scripture says? Do you desire to know the scripture and believe the scripture? You must. I must. We must. <coughs> Mull that around in your head as we worship and do communion.